Well, we're getting to the part that we're really here for, and that is uh, the music that we sing. It is like a journey that leads us up the mountain to get to the top of the mountain, and the top of the mountain is the preached Word of God. And it's uh, just a a pleasure and a delight. Uh, I've asked um, one of my friends in the ministry to not only uh, lead off, but to back clean up uh, tomorrow also. So um, let me just tell you a little bit about Scott. He's the senior pastor at Grace Church of the Valley, just up north from us, about an hour and a half or so. He began his pastoral ministry at Grace Community Church with John MacArthur. He has been uh, in the pastorate as a senior pastor for some 23 years now. And so he is seasoned. He knows what he's doing. He's also an adjunct professor at the Master's Seminary. Uh, I've had the privilege of having him as one of my mentors in the Doctor of Ministry program, so I've appreciated his input there. Um, he's a featured speaker and uh, and leader at conferences all over the place. He just arrived back from where? Montana? Montana, just a couple of days ago. Had a good night's sleep, and now he's here uh, with us. He also serves um, as a board member for Sufficiency of Scripture Ministries, which impacts lives in Uganda uh, through humanitarian aid and sound biblical teaching. Uh, he has degrees from, at the time, it was Los Angeles Baptist College. Now it's the Master's University, the Master's Seminary, and his doctorate from the Trinity Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Scott and his wife, Patty, have been married for 30 years and are the parents of seven children. And so, if you would give a warm Bakersfield welcome to Dr. Scott Artavanis. Well, it's a joy uh, to be here, to be with you. And because I'm not far and I'm in the Central Valley, I feel at home, right? But I'm warning you, tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., you're going to hear this guy named Andrew Curry, and he is from Belfast. So I brought my son Johnny with me to interpret for Andrew tomorrow. Um, You will love Andrew, and I am very, very thankful to be here, Steve. It's been a joy to get to know you over these years and just to talk on the phone and then actually be right here in the church. So I am very, very grateful for that. My wife did stay uh, behind. We were in Montana, and then I have two daughters that are taking the SAT test tomorrow. So uh, she is with them. I brought my son with me, Johnny. But you know, what's interesting, when you somebody was asking me outside, they said, what's the span of those seven kids? And the truth is, we had those seven children in nine years. And so they just all came all at once. And I felt like I was down by 20 in the fourth quarter. And uh, the, our whole life, in fact, it's funny, I can still remember, we had five and we were in the, the ultrasound and uh, he was taking extra on the ultrasound, looking and looking and searching and looking at the monitor and and all that. And my wife said, doctor, is there something wrong? And uh, he kept looking and she said, is there something wrong? And he said, no, but it is twins. And so then we found out, and the only thought I had at that point is I had to go get a bigger van for the family. Um, But we are so thankful for all the kids, love all of them. And uh, at one time, I think, what do we have, Johnny? Was it five teenagers at once? And uh, we have just loved every moment of it and are grateful to God. My oldest is married. She's a missionary in Albania. And uh, they are doing really well. They've planted a church in a city called Pokerdets, which is south of Toronto, not far from Greece. And uh, they're all just doing so well. But we're all joy to, to be with you tonight. And we have loved, I should just say for me, we have loved living in the Central Valley. So God and his providence took us from where I was pastoring down in uh, Placerita, right next to the college and university, and has moved us up to a place in Kingsburg. It's called Grace Church of the Valley, but we are just loving being there and ministering to those people. Our church just had its 10th anniversary uh, last Sunday, or maybe the one before that, and I've been there for about five years, but a real joy to be with you tonight to open this conference. And so this year, as you know, marks the 500th year anniversary of the posting. And we usually associate it with the 95 thesis by Martin Luther on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. 
In fact, it was that move, that bold stance that ignited really what we call the Protestant Reformation. The effects of this Reformation still obviously today reverberate around the world. And here we are tonight to remember and tomorrow these five solas of the Reformation, not to burst anybody's bubble, but those five solas were not coined by those men that we often associate it with the Reformers. It came sometime later where they were collecting what they taught in that time frame and attached it to the five solas that we know today. But it was really Martin Luther, and I thought maybe it'd be appropriate to kick off the, the conference tonight, who, who was really asking, was Luther, the question for the ages. And he was asking, how can sinful man be made right with God? How does one become righteous before God? And that was a question that perplexed Luther to no end. How does one get to heaven? Obviously, we understand we are sinners by nature. We are depraved to the core of our being. And the reality of such a predicament, hell, is staggering. And the answer to that question is, from the scripture, is man by himself cannot make himself right with God, contrary to what many people think and even teach today. But what's fascinating to me when you look back at that history and examine even the Reformation was the testimony of Martin Luther himself. Let me read his testimony to you just for a moment because I think it will set the stage even for what we're going to look tonight at as we open the conference on Sola Gratia. But here's the testimony of Luther out of his biography. And, and maybe just for me commenting, he was seeking to, to find peace with God. And when you read his biography, you find out that young Martin was just, he was besieged by doubts. He was filled with fear. He was filled with despair. And Luther said this, quote, he said, if you had asked me, did I love God? I would say, love God. Luther said, sometimes I hated him. I saw Christ as a terrifying judge who had the sword of judgment over my head. And Luther said he had no peace. And so as you begin to read his biography, he tried everything to assuage his conscience and his guilt before a holy God. He didn't know how could he get there, how could he be righteous with God. And so he tried everything from sleeping on hard floors and fasting to climbing a staircase, excuse me, in Rome while kneeling in prayer. I was in Rome a couple years ago at that very site where there's this long stairway. It was the saddest thing. And you come in and look and there are people crawling up those stairs on their knees, praying at every step they go up on their knees, releasing what they think is one of their loved ones from purgatory. Well, Luther did that. He did all the disciplines. He did the confessions. He did the masses. He did the absolutions. He did the good works, and they all proved hopeless. Luther said it this way. He said, if ever a monk could get to heaven through monastic discipline, I was that monk. And yet my conscience would not give me certainty. But I always doubted and said, you didn't do that right. You weren't contrite enough. You left that out of your confession. And Luther said, the more I tried to remedy an uncertain, weak, and troubled conscience, the more daily I found myself uncertain, weaker, and troubled. And so nothing pacified his tormented conscience until having been appointed the professor of Bible at Wittenberg. I say Wittenberg. If you're German, you might say Wittenberg. Um, He studied. He's a Bible professor. And he studied and expounded the book of Romans. And here's Luther's testimony. He said, quote, I had longed to understand Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. He said, I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. 
He said, night and day I pondered. He said, until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. And Luther said, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through an open door into paradise. He said, the whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. He said, the passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. And when Luther when Luther was asked later in his life about the doctrine of justification, he said, when the article of justification has fallen, he said, everything has fallen. He said, this is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. He said, it alone begets, it alone nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. He said, without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. He said, it is the master and prince, the Lord and ruler, the judge over all kinds of doctrines, end of quote. So as we celebrate this weekend and maybe this month and this 500th anniversary, we want to look at the five solas of the Reformation. We already have stated those tonight, but my task tonight is sola gratia, or just grace alone. And to look at that doctrine, I want to remind you tonight of three vital truths regarding the doctrine of justification, okay? Now, usually when I say justification, you're thinking to be justified by faith. We're going to talk about that. But I want to focus our attention tonight on the doctrine of justification. And I specifically want to look at these truths with you, the meaning of justification, the grounds of justification, and then the instrument of justification with a special focus at the end towards sola gratia, towards the conclusion, okay? So I'm going to come back to that doctrine. And my prayer tonight is, is that you would understand God's grace in a fresh way. I realize it's not as though you've never heard these doctrines. You're in a good Bible teaching church for those of you who are at this church. But let me remind you of those truths, that truth tonight of justification, with a special focus on the grace of justification. But just as we walk into the text tonight, you can look over in the book of Romans, okay? We'll start there. I won't be in one singular text. We'll be looking at a number of them. But I want to address first the meaning of justification. The meaning of justification. And maybe even as I say that, and as you're turning to Romans chapter 3, what is justification? What, what does that doctrine mean? Now, when I mention the word justification, I think first I, I want to say this is not just a, a deep theological truth, which it is, The doctrine of justification is a biblical term. So look over in Romans chapter 3 in verse 20. There is Paul is expounding in this marvelous book. He said, for by the works of the law, no human being, he said, will be justified in his sight. So we're talking about a biblical word. It's a theological word, but it's not just for systematic theologies. We're reading that here in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. If you glance down at your Bible, look at Romans chapter 3, verse 24. If you back up to 23, we're familiar for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. And it will go all the way down through Romans 3 throughout the rest of that chapter to talk about justification. But what is justification here when we open up with the meaning of justification? Justification uh, just profoundly but simply means to declare righteous. That's really what the biblical word means. It is the opposite of condemnation. If someone's condemned, we understand what that means. Justification, on the other hand, is a pronouncement of judgment. In fact, the technical definition of it would be, it is the legal act 
of God by which he declares the sinner righteous in the sight of a just and holy God, okay? It is a legal act. We even call that a forensic act by which God declares the sinner righteous in the sight of a just and holy God. Now, clearly, you know and I know that justification or that God justifies us apart from works. Look back at Romans 3.20. He says there, for by the works of the law, no, he says, he says, no human being will be justified. So that's clear. But as we begin to unpack the doctrine of justification, let me remind you of that truth tonight. When we think of the doctrine of justification, something is removed, okay, and something is added. Something that is removed that we could even say is somewhat negative, and then something is added, we would say, obviously, that's positive. First, in the doctrine of justification, it is the removal of sin. It is the removal of guilt. And then secondly, it is the imparting of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's just remind ourselves briefly of that tonight. First, when we think of God declaring a sinner righteous, his sin or her sin is removed. I mean, that is the great barrier is sin for us before God. In fact, you remember when Isaiah was in the presence of God, he saw himself as a moral leper before a holy God. Sin biblically is always against God. And the one who sins in the scripture cannot be right with God. And so here, sin stands in the way. But the wonderful news of the gospel The wonderful news of the scripture is that God through Christ has dealt with our sin. He has taken, if you will, our sins away. He has removed our sin. And so when he does that, he justifies us. He declares us not guilty. In fact, you know the scripture in Psalm 32, how blessed is the man whose transgression is, what? Forgiven. It's removed. In fact, it says in Psalm 32, 1, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Well, very well then. In the doctrine of justification, our sin is forgiven. Our sin is removed. In fact, in Isaiah 23, excuse me, in 43, verse 25, God says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your sins. And he says, and I will not remember your, what? Sins. People have asked me, well, Scott, if God knows all things, he's omniscient, yes, then how does he not remember our sins? He just chooses to not bring them back up in your presence. This is the wonderful truth of the gospel. And the wonderful truth of the doctrine of justification is it states tonight, if you are justified, that you are completely forgiven of your sin. I mean, that's a wonderful truth, isn't it? You have been forgiven of all your sins in the past, in the present, and yes, even into the future. In other words, that sin that separated you from God no longer is liable to be punished in you by a holy God. In fact, justification states that you are completely forgiven. So in justifying the sinner, God deliberately erases from your account every record of what you have done wrong. And as the sin is blotted out, so does his memory, if you will, of the misdeeds. He chooses not to bring them up. Oh, the consequences sometimes for our sin may remain, but the condemnation for the offense is gone. In the biblical terms, we are forgiven. We are covered. The psalmist said, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. 
we understand. You look over in Romans chapter 5 tonight. You know that scripture when he says, Therefore, we have, since we have been justified by faith in 5.1, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that we have peace is that our sins are forgiven. I mean, I just don't want us to miss that truth as we walk into this um, conference this weekend. I mean, when I was little, I used to use one of those electronic calculators. I don't think maybe they're the same today. I suppose they still have them, but they were the old kind. And when you were using those electronic calculators and you made an error and it was wrong, and you can see it on the screen, you would just go to the button C, and you would press the clear button, and immediately all the information that you had typed in with your hands would be eliminated. Then you'd, be, you'd begin again without trying to sort out the previous mistake. There's no record of your mistake. That record is lost forever. And here's the amazing truth of the gospel is that when you come to Christ, God forgives your sins in justification. That is why Paul said in Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. In fact, it's interesting just from a language perspective, it is why the scriptures say that we are justified and it's put in the past tense. Because in Christ, we are not subject to the charge of condemnation. You say, well, what is that? It is a declaration of righteousness on the sinner. Now, I want to be clear with you tonight. When you look at this doctrine and this biblical term, understand that when we talk about the doctrine of justification, it is not to be repeated, right? justification is not a process. Unlike the doctrine of sanctification, at least there's a positional sanctification, but when you think about the doctrine of sanctification, you say, I'm in that process. On this doctrine, justification is not to be repeated. It is not a process. It is an instantaneous event. It is a declaration of righteousness that is complete at the time of your salvation. Now realize, we're talking here into the throne room of God. Sometimes you don't feel forgiven. But the truth is, when you bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ... When you came to him, and we'll talk about that in a moment, by faith, he thereby, at that moment, in that time, declared you righteous and forgave you all of your sin. Certainly, in the book of 1 John, we confess our sin because we're in a relationship with him. But the truth is, when he justified you, he declared you righteous. And your justification is final, your justification biblically is irreversible. So when we're sing, singing that he will hold me fast, of course he's going to hold you fast. He already declared you righteous. He's not going to let go of you once he pronounces you righteous. He's going to hold you fast. That's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And so your sins are forgiven. But this is not all there is in justification. And sometimes when I'm teaching this doctrine, I say, if you had your sins forgiven, would you be able to go into the presence of God? How would you answer that? I mean, it's a little bit of a trick question. You'd say, well, hey, Scott, sure. If my sins are forgiven, I'm going to heaven. But I like to say sometimes there's another aspect of the doctrine of justification that without this you would not be able to go to heaven because in the biblical definition of the doctrine of justification is your sins must be removed, but secondly, something must be added unto you. And secondly, here within this meaning, God gives us Christ, what? His righteousness. The supreme need of sinners is righteousness. But the truth is we don't have it. And so Christ supplies it on behalf of the believing sinner. And the righteousness comes through Christ. You know that. It comes specifically through his sinless life. 
He lived 33 years on this earth and kept the law to perfection. So in justifying you, God not only removes your sin, but he imputes into your account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. You say, well, how does that work? Well, let me explain one thing to you. Look over to 2 Corinthians for a moment tonight. And this is all just introduction for what I want to tell you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, there's that classic statement there where he says to us, for our sake, and I'm in 521, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. It says, he made him who knew no sin. You understand that from the text in the life of Christ, he never sinned. He lived a perfect life. Peter in his epistle said, he committed no sin. John, the apostle, said, in him there is no sin, 1 John 3, 5. The writer of Hebrews said in 4, 15 that he is tempted in all things but without, what, sin. Now watch this in 521. For our sake he made him, it says there, to be sin, the text says, that at the end that we might become the righteousness of God. So here in justification, God forgives our sin, but then he imputes to our account the righteousness of his perfect obedience to us. And this he does, look at the beginning of 521. This should make you smile and happy. For what? Our sake. And this is unbelievable. So just as God made Christ to be sinned, and charged him with the guilt of our sin to him, so too he credits the righteous life, the perfect life of Christ to our account. So in justifying you before God, you are forgiven at the cross, and all at the same time, you are given the righteousness of Christ. So listen, if you're here tonight, just as we sing, he will hold me fast. If you've been declared righteous, you've had all your sins forgiven, and you've been credited into your account the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. Believe me, he's holding on to you more than we're holding on to him, right? It's a wonderful thought. Do you remember the hymn writer? And I'm going to quote a number of hymns tonight because I think they'll bring the truth of the theology out, so I'm glad that Darren read that quote by Martin Luther. But here's one by Wesley, and certainly you know it. When he said, no condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in what? Righteousness divine. Listen, if you've been justified, he's looking down on you right now. He's already removed your sin. He's buried your sin as far as the east is to the west. The writer of the, in Isaiah says that he buried your sins into the deepest part of the sea. In fact, it says in Isaiah that he wiped out your sins like a thick cloud. And the problem is, is that we remember our sins more than he's already forgiven them for us but he's clothed us in righteousness divine. That's the life of Christ. Of course, the reformers called this the great exchange, this on the doctrine of justification. And they called it the great exchange because what they said is they said that we as fallen human beings need an alien righteousness or they would say a righteousness that comes outside of ourselves. And that's what we've been given. And so listen, if you only had your sins removed, can I say it this way? You'd stand neutral before God. You need something else to get into his presence. And what you needed to get into his presence is his righteousness. And you don't have that. But when you are justified, he not only removes it from you, he puts that righteousness into your account. Top lady, the great hymn writer and the hymn Rock of Ages, you understand it. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin. Do you remember? The double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. But top lady used that little phrase in there, be of sin, the double cure. 
So meaning this, in the doctrine of justification, you have a double cure that is needed. You've got sin that stands in the way. He takes your sin on the cross. But the other double cure is you need the righteousness, and God provides that in his son, is what, the, is what here it's saying to us in the book of Romans. So the double cure is sins forgiven, Christ's righteousness added. That's justification. Listen, if you've been declared righteous, you've been declared not guilty of your sins, and you've been declared righteous before God. In fact, you remember the great hymn by Edward Mote, Christ the solid rock, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his, what, righteousness alone, faultless to stand, what, before the throne. Listen, I just want to assure you tonight, this is not new. I'm not acting like this is new for you, but remind yourself This is a declaration by God, if you will, a legal forensic declaration saying that you have been, your sins forgiven and you've been made righteous. I think one of the things that will help us with this, are you still in 2 Corinthians 5.21? I want to take you just to a little phrase and I don't want you to miss this. It says for our sake in 5.21, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, and now this little phrase, so that in him, it says, we might become the righteousness of God in him. We are in relationship with Christ. In other words, he is our representative. He is our representative both in his sinless life and in his sin-bearing death. In fact, Bridges, the writer, uses the phrase representative union, and he points back to Romans chapter 5. Do you remember there where Paul taught that Adam was appointed by God to represent the entire human race? And in that sense, according to Paul in Romans 5, we were all in Adam. And so when Adam sinned, we all, what? sinned and the guilt and the consequences of his sin fell upon us. We are spiritually dead. Steve read that tonight. We know that. We are children of wrath, Ephesians 2. But Paul drew an analogy by contrast and taught us that just as Adam was the representative head of all humanity, so Christ is the representative head for all who trust him as Savior. So just as we might say when Adam sinned, we may also say when Christ died on the cross, I died on the cross. And that is what Paul meant in Galatians when he said, I've been crucified with what? Christ. So the representative union with Christ is the key to understanding the gospel. Consider it this way. Jesus in his humanity was just as holy as God sitting on the throne. There is not one iota of difference. And what Jesus was in his life, we are in our standing before God because Jesus was our representative in both his life and his death. So as far as our standing before God is concerned, when he lived a perfect life, it's hard to say, do you believe that? When he lived a perfect life, we lived a perfect life. When he died on the cross, we died on the cross. All that Jesus did in both his sinless life and sin-bearing death, he did as our representative and as our substitute. So in justifying us, Christ is charged with the guilt of our sin and we are credited all at the same time with his righteousness. Isn't that an amazing thought? And I think that's what Paul's getting at when he says, in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So there's the meaning of justification. Your sins are removed. Righteousness is added. But here's the question for tonight. How are your sins actually taken away? They're removed. Yes, you know they're removed. They're taken away. They're buried. They're forgiven. They're covered, but how are they 
taken away. Let me take you secondly to the grounds of our justification, the grounds of our justification. And practically, this was done through the cross of Christ. Would you look back at Romans chapter 3 in verse 24? It says there that we are justified in 324 by, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The, the grounds of our justification, how he took away our sin is in his death in his death. Look over to Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. Since therefore we have been justified by his what? blood, much more shall we be saved from saved by him from the wrath of God for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And so we are reconciled to God, verse 10, by his death. In fact, look over at Romans chapter 8 in verse 33. You know that great statement there of his everlasting love, who shall bring any charge against God's elect in 8.33? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. And so it is God who justifies and it is Christ who died. So listen, the grounds of our justification is the cross of Christ. Peter put it this way in his epistle, he himself bore our sins on the cross. Speaking of the suffering servant and the prophecy of Isaiah, he was smitten by God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Here's the beautiful truth is that God charged our sin to Christ. He removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. The penalty for our sin was paid in full by Jesus Christ on the cross. Again, another great hymn by Wesley. You know this one, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood, what? Availed for me. He died in your place. So the grounds of our justification is the finished work of Christ on the cross for your sins. It is not your merit. It is not your work. It is not your religion. It is not your deeds. It is not a baptism. It is not a membership. It is not Christian service. It is not an overseas trip. It is his death on the cross for you and for your sins. But thirdly, you, you know that. You've, you've understood the cross. How is the righteousness of Christ appropriated to you? I mean, how do you get this? I mean, what if I just stopped? But the Bible doesn't stop. How do you get? How, I, I want that. And, and this is the truth of the God. I, I want my sins forgiven, you might say. Or you, when you're witnessing... How is it appropriated to the center? I take you from the meaning, the grounds, and this is important, the instrument of justification. The instrument. What has God designed? What, what instrument has he provided that one could make justification become theirs? And the answer is what? It is by what? It is by, in Romans, we'll come back to that. It's by faith. It's by faith. When God justifies us, it's always apart from works. The instrument in Scripture is faith. Look back at Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, Paul says in 321, the righteousness of God, it couldn't be any clearer, has been manifested apart from the law. He said, oh, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. But then he goes on to say the righteousness of God through what? Faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The instrument in the Protestant Reformation biblically is faith. You'll see this. Look over at chapter 3 in verse 26. 
it says there, it is to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. God's just. He must punish sin. And the justifier of the one who has, what? Faith in Jesus. It's faith in Christ. That's the instrument. Glance down at Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Keep going down into chapter 4 where he begins to show us that illustration of Abraham. He said, for if Abraham in 4.2 was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham, what? Believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. In fact, go down to chapter four in verse five. He says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Over and over, the scriptures affirm that the instrument for being declared righteous or the ideal of being justified comes to us by faith alone in Christ. In fact, look at the next chapter. We've already read it in 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, the thing that bothered Luther was that's not what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And I I just want to be super clear, and I don't know if there's a visitor tonight, and maybe someone brought you. If you're from the Catholic Church, I'm not trying to be hostile. I, I just want to explain the difference when we celebrate the Reformation and the distinction between the Roman Catholic Church, okay? Like, if you heard me just saying it's by faith, you're probably saying, I know that. I've known that for a long time. Of course, it's by faith, Scott. That is the gospel. But the Roman Catholic Church teaches that the instrument of justification is what? Yeah, they, and I'll, I'll explain that. But, but come back. I mean, let's just think a little bit. They do teach that. They teach a synergistic view of salvation. If you asked a Catholic, do they have faith? And I'm not trying to be offensive. If some of you have been come tonight as guests, they would have faith, but it's faith plus works. But listen to my question though. What's their instrument? Just want to be clear with you. Just so, what's that? Works, somebody said. The priest, listen, let me just, and I'm explaining just their doctrine to you. And it was like this at the Council of Trent. And this is what it states today. The instrument of justification for the Roman Catholic Church and for the Roman Catholic teaching is baptism. Did you know that? You said, well, Scott, what do you mean? Well, I always just thought that was a nice ceremony. Oh, no. They teach that the instrument of justification of being infused with the righteousness of Christ is when you take a baby to be baptized. I never knew that. So now I understand why those families are rushing their babies off to baptism. They're rushing them into baptism so that the baby will be declared or infused with the righteousness of God. Did you know that? They want their babies baptized. If you want your baby to go to heaven, Catholic theology teaches, okay, that baptism is the primary instrumental cause of justification and that the sacrament of penance is the secondary restorative cause. Catholic theology views, and I'm just explaining what they teach, views penance as the second plank of justification for those who have made shipwreck of their souls. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches if you've come to Christ through faith, he made a judicial, forensic declaration on you and declared you righteousness on the spot. 
there is not a second plank here, okay? And so we in the Protestant uh, faith make a clear distinction between justification and sanctification. Now listen, justification leads to sanctification, but you got to make sure that you leave justification as a right standing before God that he declares on you. So the sacrament for the Catholics of penance requires work of satisfaction by which human beings achieve congruous merit for justification. And the Catholic view affirms that justification is by faith, but it denies that it is by faith what? Alone, adding good works as a necessary condition. So listen, when we begin to unpack the instrument, I want you to understand what the Protestant Reformation was all about. So this became crystal clear to me. I'm a pastor in Chicago, and there was a guy on my staff, and uh, loved the guy, and his father died. And I want you to know this has been repeated many times, not in the same funeral, but this is how it goes every single time. So I go to support my staff guy. And I knew about the reputation of his dad. His dad was the furthest thing from a believer you would ever find. You would say of this guy's dad, he was as pagan as pagan can be. Multiple divorces, adulteries. I mean, the whole gamut of whatever you can say about a man lost in the world who my friend on our staff witnessed all the time to his dad. His dad never trusted Christ. So I go into the funeral. I'm I'm just explaining what they do. And I was sitting in the back and I was shocked because the priest came down through the middle and they had all their candles and all their incense And the priest got up, and within the first 30 seconds, he said this. He said, thank you for coming today. We're so glad that Mr. So-and-so has went straight into the glory of heaven because he was baptized. And I I almost stood up. That would have been bad, but I, I just... I couldn't believe it. This guy, for 70 years of his life, lived however he wanted to live. And then he goes before God because 70 years prior, he had some water sprinkled on his head. But listen, that's just not a nice, neat ceremony. They are teaching. They believe in their doctrines that that is the instrument of someone's salvation. So I've been to other Catholic funerals and it's the same. And now I bring pastor friends with me and I bump them on the shoulder and I say, listen, here's what he's going to say. And within the opening minute or two minutes, they grant the assurance of someone's salvation based on a baptism when they were just days old. So when Luther came on the scene and he began to teach this doctrine, you understand as he began to have the book of Romans opened up to him, scripture is affirming that the instrumentality of being declared righteous comes to us by faith alone, right? Look over in the book of Galatians. Let me just show you one clear statement there. Couldn't be clear in the word of God, which is our authority on the sola scriptura. But there it says... In 2.16 of Galatians, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be what? Justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I mean, it's just, it's by faith. Now, listen, I want to encourage you tonight. I kept wanting to take this out of my notes all week, but I'm gonna, I left it for some reason for you. We always have a bent towards legalism. I, I don't know what, it's just the bent of the flesh. It's a default mechanism of the flesh. We're saved by grace through faith, but in some way, especially for those who have a tender conscience, you always move towards a foreboding spirit that God has never satisfied me with me. I've not done enough. And listen, if I can say anything to you tonight, he 
declared you righteous. He forgave your sin. He took all of your sins, past, present, and future, and buried him into the deepest part of the sea. He gave you the righteousness of Christ so that as God looks down on us, he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees you through the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the solution to a foreboding spirit, if you will, is daily remembering the great exchange. That when you fail, remember that the Lord Jesus Christ has never, what, sinned. You don't get into the glory of God's throne room because of what you've done. You get into the glory of his throne room because he's removed something from you and he's added righteousness unto you. And in him, union with Christ, you are accepted. Here's how the Heidelberg Catechism said it. Catechism, they developed for their people. It was question 60, and I'll just read it in the old English. Andrew Curry will probably like this. It says, how art thou righteous before God? That's the question. How art thou righteous before God? And this has always helped me in my Christian life. Here's the answer. Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God, kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so as if I had never had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all the obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. Isn't that precious? That's how he looks at us. It is by faith. Now, I want to be clear with you. Stay with me. And I don't, I'm not double speaking on this, but it's important, especially in the 21st century. Faith is the instrument of your justification, not the cause of your justification. Let me explain that. You are not justified because of your faith. You are not justified on account of your faith. If this were true, faith would then become a what? A work. We would then be justified on the basis of our works. Faith, beloved, is the channel through which the benefits of Christ come to us. And so we are not justified on account of faith We are justified through faith. It is the work of Christ, not our faith, which is the instrument of justification. Do you understand that? Listen, if somebody walks an aisle and they say, I have faith, the the New Testament say, what do you believe in though? Faith in the New Testament always has a direct object and the direct object is the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not saved by your effort of faith. You're saved through faith, looking to what another has done for you on your behalf. Does that make sense? So here's what faith is, and I'm getting really to what I want to try to say, okay? Faith means to lay hold of Christ. It is to treasure his righteousness. In other words, faith isn't to be merited to you or credited to you. You're actually looking away from yourself to Christ. What faith is, is to lose your own righteousness. What faith is, biblically, is humility. In other words, you get to the point where you have nothing to offer God. In in fact, what faith is, is it's utter despair of everything except for Christ. Isn't that how you came to him? Did you get to the point where you realized that you were a sinner? I mean, I got to that point. I can just briefly tell you I'm 14 years old and I'm shooting baskets in my backyard, okay? Johnny's heard me tell this story numerous times. And I don't know what it was, but I thought, hey, I'm a pretty good kid. I'm probably, I'm 14, probably in eighth grade. And all of a sudden, I don't mean to be charismatic, Steve, and I'm not. But this scripture popped into my heart. And I could say it that way. This scripture popped in. God's sovereign, isn't he? But I don't know what it was. I'd been going to Grace Church, listening to John MacArthur, and I was a dead fish going downstream real fast for five years. Even though eight, even though five, uh, let's see, uh, six years before that, I had walked forward, prayed a prayer, 
signed with the deacons in the back and got baptized the next week from uh, 9 to 14. I had no assurance of my salvation. In fact, I didn't want to give Christ my life, and I kind of thought I was a good guy. And then I did, I, it, God's sovereign, James 2.10, he used the word of God, of course, because I was memorizing scripture in the D group at the junior high group. You know the scripture. For whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point, he's become guilty of what? Of all. All I can tell you is the first time in my life I realized I was a sinner. It was like a harpoon came out of heaven and it just pierced me. And I, I just, I, I, I couldn't like feel it, but I just felt the guilt of my sin. I knew I was in trouble for the first time in my life. I knew that God was holy and I knew that I was a sinner and all it took was what? One sin. I became guilty of the whole thing. So what did I do? I did what all of us do. Whatever the time is, I dropped to my knees and I confessed my sin and confessed Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Romans 10, 9 and 10. I just went to that scripture. I think I had that one but I came to Christ. And when I, was, when I was pierced that way, the only thing that I could do is look away from myself and look to what he has done on my behalf of the cross. See, what faith does is it makes you conscious of your desperate condition and the tragic judgment upon you, right? Far from being a work or a merit, faith is a realization of my demerit. Faith looks away from self and it looks to Christ. Top lady says, gave this hymn, one of my favorites, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. And then this, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's where faith comes in as the instrument. It's not your faith. It's faith in what another has done. And that's what he uses. I think the the best acrostic I learned of this is the faith acrostic. Have you heard this? F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all. I trust him. That's what faith is. Now, I think I said all this to say this to you, and, I, and I'm, I'm being serious with you. You, you. I think many of you just know the doctrines that we just taught. But on what basis does he forgive your sin? That, that, that's the question that I really feel zeroes in on my truth tonight. On what basis does he do that? Would you go back to Romans just for a second? And I want you to see this with your eyes. Some of you expressed it in that rhetorical question, but it's the, the answer to me is just shocking. It's Romans 3.24. See it anew, see it afresh. It says, for all of sin in 3.23... And fall short of the glory of God. And now this. And are justified by his, what? Grace as a, what? As a gift. Shocking. I mean, I mean it, it's the gospel. I don't even know how to say that. But if you've been justified tonight, that was a gift of his grace to you. In other words, it's his grace. It's his favor upon you. He gives you that as a gift. And our only response, I think, tonight is just to be humbled, right? I mean, walk out tonight on sola gratia that he removed your sins He gave you the righteousness of Christ. The grounds of it is in the death on the cross for your sins. The instrument that he uses is faith. But even faith is a what? Gift. If you're in here tonight and you're part of the elect and part of the redeemed, God gave you his favor when you absolutely deserved nothing. That's the gospel. It is a gift. It is by God's 
grace that a sinner believes. You say, well, I believed in him. You're right, and so did I. You said, I expressed faith, and I would say, so did I. I got down on my knees. But the faith that he gave you was a what? A gift of God. Listen, when you think about sola gratia, just walk out tonight stunned. You say, well, Scott, why did he set it up like that? Well, I can tell you why. Look in the book of Romans chapter 4. This is a profound truth. You say, why did he do it by faith? Well, look, it says in verse 16, 416, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on what? Grace. God gets the glory and we are humbled. God gave you justification as a gift. It's staggering. You say, but, but Scott, I, um, you, you, what? But, but Scott, I, 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 I've always, I've, if you're redeemed and you're justified and declared righteous, sins removed, Christ, it is a gift. In fact, would you look with me at the scripture in Romans 5, 17? You've certainly seen this before. 517, for if because of one man's trans, trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, watch this, and the free gift of what? Righteousness. It's a gift. You cannot earn this thing. You cannot work for this thing. You do not merit this salvation that God has given to you. It's a gift. And maybe for me, I grew up in a pagan home. A mom and dad who didn't know Christ. A little boy, myself, who wanted nothing to do with God. And God in his marvelous providence used a couple at Grace Community Church to reach out and share the good news of the gospel with my parents who came to Christ and then started to drag me to church. And now I'm redeemed. You say, well, what did Scott Artavanis do to earn that? Nothing, nothing. And that would be the same for all of us, right? Nothing of this justification and nothing of his righteousness resides in us. And listen, Steve read it this morning. Say it with me. For by grace, you have been saved through faith, this is not of your own doing. You say, what is the this? The faith. Faith is a gift that he gave to you. When he converted your soul and converted my soul, he granted you faith and repentance as a gift. Repentance is a gift. So you're saved by his grace through faith, this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. Listen, I wish I could tell you something more. I just got, what do you say to that? Other than this is the gospel. You don't think man would write this, do you? Only God wrote this because only God would come up with a plan that would not have us doing anything for it, right? In fact, can you go back to one scripture that Steve read? I just want you to see this because this is the truth. It says of our, you know, you know that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Steve read in 2.5, he made us alive. What is, what is that? It's the doctrine of regeneration. It's the doctrine of being born again. And you'll note that the focus there in the language is on he made you alive. You don't choose to be born again. He makes you born again. He breathes life into you. He blows the spirit into you. John 3, he makes you alive together with Christ. And then there it is again, 5. By grace you have been what? Save. What's grace? It's just simply his favor. He gives to you and gives to me something you do not deserve. And then he says, look, in verse 6, he raises you up with him. He seats you with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why does he do that? Look at the purpose clause. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You're going to be a trophy, if you will the immeasurable riches, but who's on display is the kindness and the grace of God. Won't that be a marvelous day? 
And you'll look back and there'll be no boasting. There'll be no pride in our life. No wonder Luther said that night and day I pondered until the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. My hope, the hymn writer said, is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and what? Righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is what? Sinking sand. Listen tonight, have you been justified? Listen, you might have been coming to this church for a long time, just like I was listening to Dr. MacArthur for five years. And it's never dawned on you that you were a sinner separated from God. And the only way to gain his righteousness is to beat your breast, cry out, and say, God, be merciful to me, a what? A sinner. That's how one comes. You've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever will call upon his name will be saved. You said, but Scott, faith is a gift. Yes, but it's also a command for you to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you will. But listen, and that you have sola gratia. You've been justified. This is really what I wanted to tell you. As a gift of his grace. Go home with that tonight. Let's bow our head tonight and pray. Father, we, uh, we just remind ourselves of the good news tonight. Lord, would you just help us understand this truth anew in a fresh way? Lord, in the ages to come, we're going to see the riches of your grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Oh, Father, we'll be put on display, not in a, in a boastful, arrogant way. We'll be put on display because in us is shown the grace and kindness of Christ towards us. And Father, we'll be amazed and we'll be humbled and we'll stand before you in awe. So Lord, thank you for the purity of the gospel. Thank you for the testimony of scripture. Father, may we live these truths out and may we ever be reminded of the grace that was given to us as a gift. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.